0: Thank you, Stan, <clears throat> worship team, for leading those songs of praise, and just really appreciate the, the rich doctrinal truths in those songs. Uh, you know, uh, I, I like it when we sing songs, and then when we sin about, when we kind of, the truths are so uh, uh, accurate that when we get on some of the songs, some of the lyrics, and we, says, uh, that when we talk about our sin, that it makes you stumble, because in your pride, we, we sometimes want to say, well, I'm not a sinner. But uh, that's the truth about who we are. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And I was like, wow, I just uh, appreciate the, the reminder that we are sinners in need of a Savior. But praise God, he has provided a Savior in his son Jesus Christ so that's really what we do here at Bible. I want to welcome all you who are visiting with us today especially our first-time guests and visitors or some of your returning guests as well we're uh, just glad to have you with us we as a church of Jesus Christ want to um, make disciples of Jesus Christ to the glory of God that's our purpose and that's why we exist as a church and we hope that uh, as you come here today that you uh, some of you uh, are maybe have been visiting for a while that we hope that we will help you to learn what it means to be a follower of Christ that's our desire we welcome you here to join us today today. Uh, as we, again, especially a warm welcome to the Douglases, Matt and Barb, they're here with us. They're our missionaries to Australia. And this is their last Sunday before they head back, and so they're just visiting with us. We're honored to have you visiting with us. Uh, please, uh, if you didn't get a chance to greet them two, three weeks ago, uh, greet them before they leave. And they'll be mission- meeting with our missionary uh, support team this afternoon. So uh, as we continue worship, we ask you to take your Bibles, if you have them, and like to turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 to 12. We're going to look at the whole chapter this morning. And uh, <clears throat> Isaiah 64, uh, we're ending, nearing the end of this wonderful book about the Lord being, uh, give, providing salvation for us. It, is, uh, it has been a joy to preach through this book. And uh, I'm pretty sure if you've been with us the last three and a half years, uh, you understand not only more of the Old Testament prophecies as a result of your study, but I hope you really understand and appreciate how wonderful the plan of salvation that God has for our world. Uh, we've, uh, if you've been studying with us, we've kind of reviewed this book, and it uh, just teaches us about God's plan of salvation. And if you remember when this was written, this was a book that was written 2,700 years ago. 2,700, that's a long time. This is an ancient document. Ancient document. If this was just found in some case somewhere, you go, whoa, this is ancient Historical records, and this is what we find. This thankfully, God has preserved; it's recorded for us in His Scriptures, and we get to study what God has to say to Israel in the particular context uh, in about 700 BC. But its relevance, and particularly as it prophesies of the coming Savior uh, back in 2,000 years ago in our Savior Jesus Christ. Well, so before we look to the text this morning, let's uh, let's pray one more time and ask God to teach us. Father, we thank you that we can come to your word, and we thank you that you give us your word, you give us this book of Isaiah, because it is your word, it's your truths, it's not just the words of man, but it's your inspired holy word. In it, Father, you reveal to us who you are, it reveals to us who we are, and it reveals to us, Lord, your loving compassion and mercy in providing a plan of salvation for us, for your nation Israel, and for the nations of the earth. We thank you, Lord, that you made it clear that our salvation is in and centered upon your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that we can look to this prophecy written 700 years before Christ that predicts of his coming, not only 2,000 years ago, but as we look to the text today, his coming again in the future. And Lord, we pray that we would live in our lives in light of the truth that we understand today. We pray that your spirit would teach us. These are... Pretty rich truths, Father, they, uh, they are sometimes difficult for us to grasp. But Lord, we pray that your spirit would cause us to understand and cause us to apply and live according to your word in the truth of your coming, your son's coming again. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, I'm preaching Isaiah 64, but we're going to start in the New Testament this morning. In, uh, in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, this is the Sermon on the Mount. There's a passage there that I want to turn your attention to. And that is Matthew chapter 6, verses, verse 9. Let's see if clicking along. There we go. Matthew 6, verse 9. And Jesus, in Matthew 6, verse 9 to 13, was teaching, basically, his disciples how to pray. It's often called the Lord's Prayer, uh, but it's really the disciples' prayer. And that's he's teaching his disciples, this is how you ought to pray. And so we read the text, and it says this. Jesus said, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And as we study this, uh, this uh, wonderful prayer, it really teaches us how to pray. But perhaps what is often noted about uh, this prayer, if you've ever studied, you probably likely studied it somewhere in your, in your Christian life, that Jesus, is, Jesus, as he teaches us to pray, teaches us to pray not to begin with ourselves. You know, the reason a lot of times we pray is because we there's something about ourselves that we think about. We think, oh, I need help for this. I remember when I was a little kid, I didn't know who Jesus was. But I would pray to God because I needed help on my tests. And I would pray for A's. I would pray to pass. I would pray for some new cars, new toys. And I just prayed, you know, just because I thought that's what God does. He's, He's concerned about me. And so I would pray in those ways. But Jesus teaches us here in this prayer, this example, is that when we begin and when we pray, we don't begin with us. We begin with him. When our prayers to God should always begin with God. That's why he teaches us to, instead of thinking about our bread, our debts, our temptations, we focus upon God, His name, His kingdom, His will. All of these are the things that we focus on first. That we that we pray that His name would be hallowed, that would be revered. We pray that His kingdom would come and that His will would be done. And then we go to the concerns that we have before that are we, that really cause us uh, to draw near to Him. Now, as we look to Isaiah 64 this morning, our text today, we really find an example of the kind of prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. That in Isaiah 64, even though Israel has a great need, they're basically experiencing desolation because of their sin, but their focus on this text focuses on God. Their concern is about that God's kingdom would come. Their focus is on his name. Their focus is on his will first before they turn to their own uh, particular need. And so I believe as we look at this chapter today, it's going to teach us and just confirm for us really even how we ought to pray. Particularly pray to God with a view to his coming again, to the Lord's coming again, to our Savior's coming again. We know he came 2,000 years ago, but the scriptures also teach us that he will come again one day. He will come again to judge the world. As we've been studying Isaiah, we've seen this this, uh, judgment emphasized in the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. We've heard a lot about judgment, didn't we? God, there is judgment for sin. And not only judgment upon Israel for their sin, but the judgment upon the nations for their sin. Judgment is inevitable before a holy and just God. Just as you and I would expect that there would be a punishment and a penalty for someone who breaks the law of our land. So there is also a just penalty and payment for those who break the laws of God. Now, on the other side, in contrast to the judgment that we looked at, chapters 139, in chapters 40 to 66, we see God's provision of salvation. We see this comfort, this consolation, this encouragement that he gives to us. And the encouragement is this, that though we are all under judgment for sin, God provides salvation. God provides forgiveness. God provides eternal life. And we've been looking at chapters 46 to 6 in 6 the many ways that God has been comforting Israel, particularly in the face of judgment. And in the last chapters of Isaiah uh, of Isaiah, uh, we have seen that God comforts Israel through the promise of a coming deliverer to judge the nations, to judge the world for their sin. And it's a comfort to Israel because they are basically lived in fear of the surrounding nations. Even today, Israel is often surrounded by enemy nations that, uh, pe- and peoples that want to uh, destroy them. But there is the reality that for them, that when the Lord returns again, He will not only judge the nations, but He will deliver Israel. He will save them. And so... Last time, or as we look at chapter 64, it really needs to be understood in the light of the last time that we looked at chapter 63. And I want to just quickly give you a review of chapter 63, because chapter 63 is the context for this chapter. In 63, verse 1 to 6, and that's the uh, the key thought, is that there is a revelation of God's wrath. There's a revelation of a coming day of vengeance, is the term. Where the Lord would come and He will destroy the nations. We talked about Him being clothed in in a garment that was stained with with looks like He was tra- treading in a wine press. And in the Lord, when He comes, He describes that the, the stains on His clothing are basically blood. It's the blood of the nations that He has tread. So there's a description of this coming judgment that it's, that He's going to pour out upon the nations for their sin. But so we saw in the verse seven to fourteen, beginning or. Beginning of 63, verse 7, a prayer, a response of the Israel. They first respond remembering the Lord's loving kindness. They remember God's love, that God is a faithful, loyal God who, when he promises, when he makes a promise to someone, he will keep his promise to someone. That's the demonstration of his love. And in verse 15 and 19, we saw that Israel responded then to request and call for the Lord to return, to save them. And so we pick this up in chapter 64 now, where we continue and we see further responses to the promise of the coming of the Lord's wrath, the day of vengeance. The coming day of God's wrath causes Israel to respond in further prayer. And we see in chapter 64 a threefold response, three responses to the promise of the coming day of God's wrath. And these these responses are an example, they set for us even an example for you and me today in how we ought to respond. The scripture does teach that after so many years, 2,700 years, the Lord has not returned. Or even 2,000 years, the Lord has not returned. We know in, uh, in the New Testament that God is not slow about his promises. It's not that he's forgotten. It's not that he said, well, you know, I, I meant something else. The Lord will return. And so with the promise of the Lord to return, we ought to live in a certain way in light of this. And we can learn from Isaiah chapter 64 today. So let's learn from their example. Let's learn from their response. The first response that we see to the, coming, to the promise of the coming day of wrath is that Israel will call upon God to act. They're going to call upon God. Specifically, they're going to call upon God to, to come down to this world and to take action. That's what they pray. So, let's re- pick it up. Verse 1 to 3. We'll read all uh, the first three verses. Chapter 64. Oh, and so Israel is responding in prayer. Oh, that you, that is God, you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quake at your presence. Let's stop right there. If you remember the context of the, near the end of, or of chapter 6, 3, chapter 3, verse 15, you look there, 6, 3, 15, we see that there is a prayer where God is called to look down from heaven, look down from him and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Now, when you think of God where he exists, God is a spirit being, so heaven is not a physical place. It's a spiritual place. It's a spiritual realm. But yet, oftentimes, we just, when, when we use uh, descriptions of uh, dis- of where God is in relation to man, God is often seen as above. That he would, and so they, the prayer is that God would look down from heaven in verse 15 to 63. But in chapter 64, verse 1, the prayer changes slightly. Not only do they pray that going to look down, but now they say, O oh Lord, rend the heavens and come down. There's an urgency, a great urgency. They want God to actually come down and make his presence known just as he had done in the past. And as a result of his coming down, the heavens are going to be rendered. It's almost like if you could just imagine looking up in the sky. And all of a sudden, the clouds roll back. The, even if it's a blue sky, it just like rolls open, tears asunder. And then all of a sudden, God comes down. And that is like nothing you and I have ever seen. And when that time happens, as Isaiah describes here, the whole world will know it. The mountains will quake at his presence. It's referred to not only in verse 1, but in verse 3, when God comes down. You know, I just read a couple, uh, this idea of quake made made me think of something I heard like a week ago. And it was a report about how, oh, in the last 48 hours, there were like 40, 50, 60, whatever, earthquakes all around the Pacific Rim. And so therefore, Californians, what did they tell us? The little ones coming. No, the big ones coming. You guys have all taken it for granted, haven't you? Yeah, I know. Exactly, right? We hear it all the time. The big one's coming. The big one's coming. And we come. Especially if you've been around the Bay Area long enough. But the fact is, there's a bigger one coming when the Lord comes down. When he comes down the... The skies will be torn asunder. The earth, the mountains will shake. There will be a great earthquake that everyone know. It, it won't be something that's going to take place where everyone's going to wonder, hmm, I wonder why the world is shaking. Oh, I wonder why. Oh, I don't know. Everyone will know that it's because the Lord has come down. Everyone. In fact, everyone will know because the description in verse 2 talks about, it's almost, it's illustrated for us. It's like fire. Um, now, how many of you guys just got some fire in your pocket right now? Nobody, right? Because if you have fire in your pocket, you would know it, right? Unless you're a lighter, okay? Uh, But that's not really fire. But fire, when it touches wood, what happens to wood? Do you want to touch that wood? No, you don't because it's going to burn. Fire against wood is going to burn. What about if there's a a pot of water you put fire to? You want to put your hand in the water? No, because it's going to boil. Fire, when when applied to wood, when applied to water, is going to change that water and wood. It's going to burn. It's going to boil it. And that's when God comes. It's just going to be like that. It's going to be like fire coming down. And everyone's going to know it. You're not going to be able to avoid it. Everyone will observe. And that's what it says. It will, when he comes down, the prayer for him to call, come down is so that to make his name known, to make God's name known so that everyone will know that the Lord has come. The people of this world may hate God, may oppose God, but they will know his name one day. He is the Lord, Jehovah. They may uh, oppose him, uh, or they may not want to believe in him. They may say he's a myth. They may say, oh, he's just uh, something, a crutch that you guys have made up. But one day, everyone, no matter what they think about God, will tremble before him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus, the Lord, is Lord. And when he comes, he will accomplish awesome things. You know, we sometimes you know. Oh, actually, I don't know. Do you guys junior hires? You still use the word awesome? When I was a junior hire, we used to use the word awesome, awesome, awesome. You know, it was now that I when you. But when you see the word awesome here, we use awesome in the most underrated of ideas. When the Lord comes again, it will be awesome. You know, it's to really. It is going to be something that we. Cause awe and, and shock and, and amazement in every, uh, everyone who sees it. When God, and he, the most amazing thing is because he's going to come and he's going to judge the nations. That will be a, an awesome, terrifying thing. But the most amazing thing, particularly for the nation Israel, is that he will come down and save these sinners. That will be awesome. A God who saves sinners who otherwise ought to judge and destroy sinners. Every right to do so. This is our God. Uh, he will do so to make His name known. And so Israel's prayer for God is to come and act, come down to earth. And really, they're, what they're praying is they're praying that His name would be hallowed. It would be revered. They're praying that God's kingdom you would come. That's exactly what Jesus taught us to pray, and that's what Israel is going to pray. Verse four is a key verse in this whole section. It's not the whole chapter. It's an explanation of how awesome it's going to be when He comes down. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has the eye seen a God besides You, who acts in behalf of the one who waits for Him. And so, what this verse is telling us that why is it going to be so awesome? Because no one has ever seen a God like this. They've never, they've not known, they've not heard, they've not seen any God like the Lord. In fact, they never even recognized the Lord. He's a unique God. If you think about the 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 Jewish Shema, the, the, the verses that they remember on Deuteronomy 6, the Lord, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, right? The Lord is one. This is, he is the unique God. Isn't There's no other God besides him. And the fact is, Israel is supposed to know that, but the nations don't. The, nation, the nations as a whole do not recognize God. There is no God besides the Lord. That's, that's what is amazing. But this verse says even more than that. It says more than that, that he's the only God it states really that the world has never, not ever perceived a God who acts in behalf of those who wait for Him. Basically, there's no one who has ever perceived a God who saves in this way. You know, in our world, there are many religions. There are many philosophies. There are some people who believe there are thousands of gods, innumerable gods. But when you compare all the religions of the world, our God stands apart from the false gods of the, this world in that he is the one who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. God stands apart because his salvation takes place through his sovereign will and actions. He does the saving. When you look at every other religion in the world, when you look at every other God, and when man comes up with a religion, what is it that we make? We make a religion where our, whatever God is of our imagination, he expects something of us in order to be saved. You must do this. For me to save you. You must do this to be saved. You must do that to be saved. But not our God. Our God saves, acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. He doesn't save upon behalf of the one who does things for him, He does it for those who wait. When it comes to salvation, we have learned that the Bible teaches that salvation is a completely a plan and is a plan by God and accomplished by God and provided by God, apart from anything that we do. Really, we call this salvation by grace through faith. That's what we call it, salvation by grace through faith. It's a, Grace is, it means it's a gift. It's not something we earn or deserve. And it's through faith. It's through simply believing and trusting in the Lord. It's not by doing anything. It's not by going to church. It's not by giving an offering. It's not by praying. It's not by reading your Bible. It's not by just doing some good deeds. None of these things save us. But God acts on behalf of the one who waits in him. The man and To wait is basically is a, is equivalent to hoping in God or putting our trust in God. All the other gods of this universe, this world, and when we come up with religion, we're gonna make sure that our God asks us to do stuff. Especially if you are like to lead a cult, you make sure you ask them to give money. That's number one. So if you know, that's that's why when we talk about offering, it's a free will offering. If you want to give, you may give. It's not because you have to give. Our God will act apart, it will save apart from anything you do. Our responsibility is to wait then in faith upon him. And we know this because, oh, I got so excited. I skipped Exodus 19, but uh, there's an example of uh, the mountains quaking. But we learned this. We saw Isaiah writing about this early when God said, It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. See, God brings, provides salvation for those who wait upon him not for those who do. What's kind of interesting, though, is, of course, is that, furthermore, is that Paul would quote verse 4 of Isaiah 64 in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. When there he's writing about the, the wisdom of the gospel that was preached by Paul and his associates, he wrote there, 1 Corinthians 9, just, just as it's written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. There's a couple, two verses kind of brought together there. But the first part, describing the things that about God see Paul's gospel message the gospel of Jesus Christ which, was a, is a, which is a message of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is a message that none would have ever perceived it's, it's not a salvation by works it's a salvation that's by grace through faith it's nothing that man would, could perceive on their own but it was something that was revealed by the spirit of God and it's the salvation that was that's revealed here in verse four. Salvation is of the Lord, and so if we want salvation, if you know God's going to come and judge us for sins, salvation must be a work of the Lord. And before we ever even get to the place where we even express our need, our uh, the, our confession of sin or, or our repentance, we must recognize first and foremost who God is—that He must save—and we must call out to God to act and to save us. Salvation is of the Lord. That's the theme of Isaiah. Salvation is of the Lord and comes to those who wait upon Him. Uh, Isaiah 40, 31 is just another cross-reference uh, that we can look at uh, about the, how those who wait upon the Lord, will renew their strength. They will mount up like wings like eagles. They will run, not get tired. They will walk, not become weary. There's a, there's a restoration that God gives to those who wait upon Him for salvation. And Israel, one day, in the future, will call upon God to act. They will turn to him. Secondly, as we look at this, as we continue in this passage, we see there's a second response of the people of God to the promise of the coming day of wrath. And that is what we would more naturally expect, a confession of sin to God. That if God is going to come to this world and destroy the world and judge the world for the, and to judge the nations because of their sin, then it, we wouldn't want to make sure that we make sure that we confess our sin to God, that we've that somehow we have our sin uh, taken care of, if some way if we can make right our wrongs, and there's a for Israel it begins with a confession of sin to God. You know, although God's coming day of vengeance is a day of judgment upon the nations, the people of God will have a healthy fear of God and an awareness of their own sin. It's like a uh, when you know that the authority is coming, it makes you look, conduct yourself in a little different way. I don't know about you, but especially when I was younger, but even now still, there's a little remnant of it. When I'm driving down the street and I, I see a police officer, uh, immediately I, I kind of tense up, you know. Okay, it's just like, it's the gangster radar in my, you know? Like, oh, 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 man, you know, I make sure I'm not in the wrong neighborhood, you know? <laughs> just, and all of a sudden, I'm aware that, oh, man, I might make sure, I'm not speeding, am I? Okay, whew. you know, I have my lights on. I'm not filling with my phone, am I? Uh, you know, all these things that you could get a ticket for, get a, punished for, because the police officers are uh, an extension, are an arm of the law the land, of our land, and they have a, every right to punish us when we do wrong. How much more when we know that, the Lord is coming. The ultimate authority of this world. That it should cause us to have a healthy fear of this authority, this creator God. And it should cause us to want to then make sure that we are conducting ourselves in the right way. Verse 5, as we pick up here, continues the thought from verse 4. Okay, verse five, And uh, <clears throat> on God acting on behalf of the one who waits for him. Verse 5, you meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness who remembers you in your ways. I want to stop right there because God is basically meets with him. That is, God will have a, he'll, he'll show his face. Uh, in the context of the temple, it would be that when you bring your offering to him, he would come and accept your offering. He would receive you to himself. Really, is, in light of this passage, it's almost uh, equivalent with God hearing our prayers. Remember some of the, uh, the lament of the Israelites was that, God, you're silent. You're not hearing us. You're not showing your face upon us. But God is going to meet with those who rejoice in doing righteousness, who remember and walk in God's ways. See, and as Israel recounts this, as they're thinking about, oh, this is what God does. God uh, shows favor or heeds those who walk in righteousness as a. Uh, they, they all of a sudden think about themselves and they go, uh oh, we're in trouble. Why are they in trouble? Notice why they were in trouble. Because the reason why God's been silent, why God's not been meeting with them, why God does not respond to them, the root of their problems, the root of mankind's problems, is found in the latter part of this verse. Behold, you were angry for we sinned. We continued in them a long time. Shall we be saved? Shall we be saved? This is a a very rich verse. Uh, It is the, here is the chosen nation of Israel. Chosen nation of Israel. At one point in the future will respond to God's coming impending wrath and they will finally acknowledge that we sinned. We sinned. And they sinned in the sense not that they just committed one act of sin. They just sinned and steal the one time. But they continued in it for a long time, they said. It wasn't just a one-time sin, but a continual practice of sin, a lifestyle of sin, a walk in sin. And Israel will one day come to acknowledge this very simple truth. But a truth that the nation of Israel, even if you go to Israel, has not as a whole recognized yet. There's always a remnant of faithful Israelites that God brings to, the, uh, to saving. But as a whole, as a nation, they have not come to recognize their sin they have sinned, and one day they will recognize it. They, they are sinners. The nation, if you read the Old Testament, you read the nation Israel, you see that this is a nation that was blessed by far. So, they were chosen. Abraham was chosen. And so many promises given to him and to Isaac and Jacob. But time after time again the people of God, the nation of Israel, would sin. They would rebel against God. They would stop worshiping Him. They would worship idols. They would, live, they would intermarry with other, worship, other practitioners of other religions and follow after those religions. They would get so involved, they would sacrifice their children to idols. Continually, they rebelled and worshiped other gods. Even though they had the special privilege of being children of Abraham, possessing the law of God, Moses, the Mosaic law. They possessed all the covenant promises of God. They possessed the very temple where God's, God's glory would dwell among mankind. And they had all the offerings in the, of the temple that they, would, they were provided for so they could have a, a right relationship with God. But they lived, though they had all that, they lived as if none of that made any difference in their lives. They lived for their own selves. They lived for their selfish desires. They, they, one hand, on Saturday, the Sabbath, they would go worship God, and the rest of the days, they go worship their idols. They were hypocrites in their walk with God. It is, and before you and I judge too quickly Israel, we can easily fall in the same, same pattern, can't we? It's so true, easy for us. We here, we can think that we're members of a Christian family. We're members of a Christian church, a good Bible teaching church. We have Bibles. We, we open the Bible. We have church services. We, we give offerings. We attend fellowship groups. And then we can have all that, but then live our lives as if none of that matters. As if that was, that was what made us good with God, but then we lived in selfishness. We lived in sin, and we continued in sin We never confessed our sin. It would be completely right of us, if we were were living like that, to ask ourselves the same question that Israel asked. Shall we be saved? Shall we be saved if I live like this? If I continue in sin, will I be saved? You know, sometimes we put too much emphasis on the prayer that we prayed. In third grade. It's a great moment when we do that. I, I rejoice every time my child prays to receive Christ again and again. I'm okay with that. But I don't want my children's faith to be based upon a prayer they prayed 20, 30 years ago. I want them to know that their faith is a faith, continuing faith. A trust in the Lord always that reflects in how they live. It's manifest in how they live. We're not saved by a prayer we prayed. We're saved because of our faith in Jesus Christ. There is no salvation for those who continue in sin. Uh, John writes in 1 John 3 9, no one who is born of God practices sin. That is that we continue in sin. Now, of course, I want to add, for those of you who kind of knew the faith, it doesn't mean that you don't sin. You do sin. We all have sin. In fact, this week, I would imagine all of us have sinned in some way or fashion. In fact, by the end of this day, every one of us will have sinned in some way, whether thought or deed. Or absence of a thought or a deed, right thought or a deed. We are all sinners. There was no one who saves us because his seed abides, and he cannot sin. We cannot continue practicing sin. The believer in God cannot practice until we, because you have the Spirit of God in you, the Spirit will make you miserable. He will discipline, convict you, and so you'll confess your sin, as we saw in 1 John 1 9. So Israel will acknowledge that they've sinned, that they're in need of salvation. And as they confess their sin, the next two verses simply elaborate that they just didn't just sin once, like some little sins. It's not like they're just like, oh, yeah, we sinned because I, I remember when in high school, I stole a hubcap. Ooh, that's bad. You know, when we're honest with ourselves, our sins go be much more deeply and, and uh, thoroughly in our lives than just having stolen something when we're in high school or college. In fact, our whole being is corrupted by sin. We have a sin nature that gives us this tendency, this bent towards sin, and given to ourselves our own choices, we choose sin. We choose that which is for our own good, our self, thinking that, forgetting that God's, God is the ultimate good for us. There's no, in verse six and seven, it just talks about the depravity of our sin, the depravity of Israel. So let's look at this. And, and this, verse six, is... Most likely the most well-known, most familiar verse in all of this chapter. And you probably, maybe even Isaiah to some extent. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all your righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And all of us wither like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. You know, when I read verse, these verse 6-7, I think of Romans 3. There is no one who's right. There's no, not one. None of us seek after God. No one knows God. No one does good. No, all of us have, have gone our own way. Basically, all of us did not, none of us seek after God. All of us are sinners. All of us are unclean. This is what God gave the ceremonial laws to teach Israel about how they would be clean or unclean. In fact, for instance, those who had skin issues, skin problems, I you know I have a little psoriasis, you know I might be considered unclean because of my psoriasis. They'd have to check it out if I was a leper or not. Then oh man, leper leper, I would I'd be unclean. There was a whole process for how to be cleansed. And why did God teach us do that? Because He wanted to teach Israelites that there is some there's a difference between sin and holiness. And though he talked about ceremonial uncleanness, there were many laws that were There's also a way to be ceremonial clean. And he wanted to teach him that just as we are sinners, there's a way to be made right before God, to approach him. And so he strives that all of us are like unclean people before God. It reminds us of uh, Isaiah when he recognized in Isaiah 6-5, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He was before the throne of God. Remember, that was the vision, his calling. The more we real- see God, the more you and I should recognize that we are sinners. We fall short of a holy God's standards. You know, some of us, you know, and when we compare, when you look at each other, oh, yeah, I can easily imagine. Some of us are thinking, oh, I'm more holy than that guy. <laughs> I'm more holy than her. Oh, yeah, i am definitely been there. I'm good. But when we look at God, we should all bow our heads. None of us are right before God all of us are sinners. All of us fall short. And what's more, even our righteous deeds, even the good things you do, helping the lady cross the street, you know, when you open the door for someone, when you feed your children because they're too lazy to eat. Uh, That's a good deed, (laughs) All of it is described as filthy garments, filthy rags, description of a of of unceremonial uncleanness, garments that even commonly used even of uh, uh, referring to the menstrual cloths that women had that made them ceremonially unclean. That's that's how vivid this picture is. All of us, even the best of us, are considered ceremonially unclean before the Lord. As a result of our sin, we we grow weak. We're like leaves that wither and, and are blown away by the wind. What's more, no one calls on the Lord No one does anything about seeking the Lord. None of us even realize it. None of us want to do that. We're all dead in our sins, and that's what Israel would recognize because God had hidden his face. God, God, when we continue in sin, well, God will sometimes, as a part of his discipline, give us into the power of sins. He said, you want sin so much? Here, I'm going to let you choose that sin and have all of that sin that you want. And when he lets us have all the sin, we come to realize how desperately trapped we are in sin, our helplessness. And the only response to that is that we can't even get out. We can't, oh, I'm so helpless. It's like, oh, I'm going to turn around and do something. No, we can't. We, the only thing we can recognize is that God must do something. And so that's what Israel is calling God to act. And therefore, they're confessing their sins to him. God, one day, Israel will confess their sin to God. Because of the, the recognition that He is coming to bring judgment upon the world, And God's wrath upon sin should drive us all to recognize our own sin. You know, for many of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, and, and you have you can give a clear testimony of your faith, and you've seen God's transformation in your life, and you have great assurance of salvation. But even for us, it should be a hel- This should always the coming of the Lord Jesus should be a healthy motivation to cause us to examine our own lives. The scriptures talk about if knowing that the world is going to come and be judged and destroyed in this way, how should we conduct ourselves in holy behavior and godliness? Right? We should conduct ourselves in holiness and godliness. And if we're living in sin and we allow ourselves to continue in sin, we don't dealing with our sin. We kind of think, oh, you know, I'm, we can do this because Jesus already paid for all my sins, and so I can just keep sinning because it's okay. That's the wrong attitude to have. And all of us should check ourselves because if we continue in sin, we should be asking like Israel, shall we be saved? Perhaps, it's not that God will take away his salvation, right? God, wants, God is faithful. He keeps his promises. But it may be an indication that we never truly hoped in him or put our trust in him or believed upon him. Or... This is the reality for all of us who are sinners, all of us who are descendants of Adam. Each of us in this room, apart from God's act to save us, we would be dead in our sin and there can be no salvation from sin until you confess that you are a sinner before God. And that's where it begins. We must confess our sin to God, as Israel does. And it is then, when you confess your sin to God, that takes us to that third response that Israel has. A third response is this, that the Israel will cry for mercy from the Father. They will cry for mercy from the... Because the, the penalty for sin is this. It's God's Judgment, God's wrath. There's a penalty. The penalty is death. For the wages of sin is death. That's clear. So how then can if we have committed sin, it's not like we can ch- go back and change our lives as if we didn't sin. What can we do about sin? How can we ask, how can we be forgiven and, and, and saved? Only by the mercy of God. By God's mercy. Only because of who God is. That he's a merciful God. We will cry out to him. And one day, Israel will cry out to the ultimate Judge for mercy. They will cry out to the Lord, and these five verses that we're going to take a look at at the to end will show us in the, their appeal to God for help. They appeal first of all to God as sovereign Creator. Look at verse eight with me. But now, O oh Lord, you are our Father; we are the clay; you are our Potter, and all of us are the work of your hands. All of us. I love this text. Remember back in chapter 63, verse 16, Israel had called, acknowledged the Lord as their father. They did that twice there. They do so again here. There's a significance to calling God their father. You know, we don't just call him dear God. We could. We can call him a dear Lord. We could call him that as well. But Jesus, when, even when you think about Jesus teaching us to pray, what does he teach us to address God as? Our father who art in heaven. Our heavenly father sometimes we say. There's a significance to calling God our father because it reflects a relationship. It reflects a relationship that a father has with children. All of us who are earthly fathers or even who's had earthly fathers can relate. When you're a child and you have a father, when you call him dad, whoever you call dad, even if they're not your biological dad, is someone who you will look to and trust in for help. You look to them as someone who will provide for you, who will help assist you when you are in need. And so when, he calls, when Israel recognizes and calls on Father, they're essentially acknowledging their dependence upon Him, their need for Him. And that's what all of us do when we call God our Father. Now, in addition to fatherhood, it is added the concept of God as the potter and the Israelites as the clay. This is a familiar illustration. We're probably more familiar with that out of Romans chapter 9, but here it is. The, uh, probably one of the earliest uses of potter and clay imagery with regards to God and, and, and man. And this is basically the description of that God is creator. The God is the creator who made them. He's the potter. And we're like lumps of clay. And as a potter, you know, you go to a potter, he, can do whatever, he or she can do whatever they want with, with clay, right? That's just kind of what you want to do. You can, you can make it into a, a beautiful vase. You can make it into a, just a little pencil cup holder. Whatever you want. And God has that sovereign ability to do so. He's the creator. He made them all. All of them are the work of his hands, they say. He made all of us. There's significance to God being the potter and they are the clay. They are recognizing he's creator. and when, Recognizing creator means that we must answer to him. You know, that's why in our world, no one wants to acknowledge that there's a creator. You know, even, uh, you know, we, we want to come up with other theories of how we all came about. We want to deny that God was involved in creating the universe. Because when you acknowledge that God created the universe, as it says in Genesis 1, then you must acknowledge that this God who created us is someone we must answer to. That's the significance. That's the relevance of God being creator. God sovereignly made the Israelites, and therefore, they answered to him. But they also understand that as creator, as the creator, he is able to sovereignly save them as well. Because he's the potter and they're the clay. He can do whatever he wishes, wishes with his creation. He wants to save some, he can. He doesn't want to save any, he doesn't have to either. He has every right. And so the so Israelites, they appeal to him as their creator, but they also appeal to God for mercy in verse 9. Here's the request for mercy Do not be angry beyond measure. Remember earlier, they already acknowledged that God is angry because they had sinned. Say, so do not be angry. Beyond measure, O Lord, nor remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Essentially what they're saying is, God, don't be angry with us forever. Don't keep remembering our sins. Don't keep holding it against us. Please have mercy upon us. We recognize we're sinners. We recognize that we deserve punishment. But Lord, do not be angry forever. They're asking God for essentially mercy. They cry out to God to forgive them of their sin, to forget their sin. And how can they do this? Is, that, is this the kind of God we, that they have? Is he, he's a just God, isn't he? Why would he all of a sudden just let them go as if they had not committed any sin? Because God is also a merciful God. We see in Isaiah 43, verse 25, God says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. God is a God because he's a merciful God. He's a forgiving God. He will wipe out all sins for his sake, for his name, for his glory, so that we would worship him. He will not remember our sins. And that's great. God is a just God. He punishes sins. And God is a merciful God. He forgives sins. But, you gotta, but if he's merciful, then how is he just? How can a just God just let people off? If your government just let, let open up all the prisons tomorrow and let all the prisoners out and say, oh, we're being merciful. Let's forgive them all. Let's treat them as if they had never committed the murders, rapes, and uh, robberies and stealing as if they, they never happened. What would you say? Oh, our government is so merciful. Praise our government. I don't think so. We would say, where's justice? How can God be just and merciful? God can be just and merciful, forgiving sin, because he has provided someone to pay the penalty for their sins. Israel will one day recognize this, that the messianic servant, the Messiah that they have been looking for, the one promised by Isaiah, God's son of Isaiah 714, He is the the virgin-born son. He is the prince of peace. He is the mighty counselor, the wonderful God. He is the root of Jesse. He will come, or he has come. They will recognize that he has come and that he died for their sins. Just as Isaiah had written of in Isaiah, back in Isaiah 53, verse 5, we talked about, we saw how the messianic servant was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, Verse 8 of Isaiah 53, and the whole section is about his death and for our sins, but he was cut off out of the land of the living. That is, he died for whom? For the transgression of my people, he says. That he would send, God sent his son, his Messiah, his servant, to die for his people. To die for their sins. The sinless son of God had come and died on the cross for the sins of God's people died for the sins of the world. And the repentant Israel will recognize that. They'll recognize that truth. That is why God can be just and why God is merciful. Israel will lastly appeal to God as a jealous God. They'll appeal because God God loves those things or has a love and guards what belongs to him. This is a God is a jealous God in the sense that it's a good jealousy, by the way. It's not a sinful jealousy. We pick up in verse 10 to 12. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praised you, has been burned by fire, and all our precious things have become a ruin. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us beyond measure? So it ends with these rhetorical questions, but a description of something that has happened to the things of God. You notice the descriptions of of the things of God that we find here. Your holy cities, God's cities, that is the cities of Israel. They become a wilderness. That is, they become unpopulated. Zion, Jerusalem, Zion, Jerusalem are synonyms. They're just the same city, referring to Jerusalem being the capital of Israel, has become a wilderness, but it's also become a desolation that is described as something that's been destroyed by war or by judgment of some sort. And then the description of our, our holy and beautiful house. This is describing the temple. This is the house of God where their fathers had once praised and worshiped God. Has been what? Has been burned by fire. So describing the cities of God, the city of God, the temple of God. They've all been burned. Even the, the precious things have become a ruin. They're, they're describing basically the, the, not just the, the people's phones or the people's cars or the people's Teslas. They're talking about the precious things of the temple, the valuable things that were there where the people of God would use to worship the Lord. All of it will be in a state of destruction, of, burned, of, of chaos, of being burned down. You keep in mind there, especially this reference to the, the house of God being burned. Remember, Isaiah was written when about 700 BC. Okay, I know you, you don't have that memorized, but you should. No, you don't have to. <laughs> 700 BC, seven around there. But when at this point, when Isaiah is writing this, the temple is not burned. The temple is standing still, right? Solomon's temple is still up. It's not. It's, and so, this is a prophecy of the future destruction of the temple of God. When would that happen? Well, we know, of course, from history that we can go back to 586 BC when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. We could think maybe this is fulfilled in 70 AD when Jerusalem was also destroyed by the Romans. Or it could even be a future, just referring to a future destruction, and I believe it's a future destruction that will take place someday in the tribulation period at the hands of the Antichrist. But nevertheless, God is called upon here to, depend, to defend upon those things that belong to him. His holy nation, his holy city, his holy temple, and his holy people. And God, is a, who is a jealous God, who, who has made promises to his people, will save his people. The answer to the rhetorical questions of verse 12 is that yes, he won't remain restrained forever. And yes, he won't remain silent forever. He will act and he will save just as he has promised. And we'll see that, his response in chapter 65 next time when we come back. God is going to act to save Israel for his name's sake. God's going to save Israel. God's, that's the kind of God is who he is. Even though Israel, time and time again, there's nothing about Israel that has made them worthy to be saved. They're sinners. They were a sinful nation. They, they will acknowledge it even one day. And God will save them because of his name. He will save them when his kingdom comes. He will save them to accomplish and bring about his will. We know he will because he has promised to do so. We've seen it in Isaiah already. But we know he will do so too because the penalty for their sins has already been paid on the cross in the death of his son, Jesus, our Savior and Lord. And I trust and hope for those of us here that you who have believed in Jesus Christ can have this confidence, knowing that your sins have been paid. But we still end with the question. Our last question, just a review question for us, is this, how shall I respond to God's promise of the coming day of wrath upon the nations? How will you respond? How will I respond? God's gonna come back. And I hope we're not thinking just because of the, the of what we do that we will be able to stand before him Without, ju- without judgment. That we will not, that we will somehow because of, you know, we go to church or we pray or we give, all these things that we do, that God's going to say, okay, I'll enter into my heaven. But our confidence is only going to be in the fact that we have acknowledged that God saves, that we are sinners, and that only because of his mercy through his son, Jesus Christ, can we be saved. And so let us like learn to be like Israel. If, and if you haven't already believed that you would call upon God to act, confess your sins, and cry out for his mercy. And that is the way to salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and thank you for these truths. Thank you that we just uh, have a glimpse of the response of future Israel responding to the day of your coming wrath. And Lord... We know that day will come because you have promised to do so. And even as we have been studying about it, Lord, we do pray that you would come again. Oh, Lord, come. Come, Lord, and make your name known among the nations. Come, Lord, and establish your kingdom on earth. Come, Lord, and act on behalf of your people who wait upon you. Come, Lord, and make right every wrong. Come, Lord, and destroy those who have rebel against you. And come, Lord, and dest- deliver your people we pray you would come and just to establish and fulfill every promise you've made to israel your chosen nation and to us your church thank you lord that all these promises that you will fulfill because they have been they are bound up in your son our savior jesus christ lord we thank you for jesus and we pray that we, there's not a single soul would leave here today with an understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done, why he's so important, and that he was prophesied 2,700 years ago, 700 years before he even stepped on earth, and that he's been prophesied that he will come again. Oh, Lord, give, grant us wisdom to live in light of this. Help us to acknowledge sin in our lives, to confess it to you, to turn from sin, to live in, in holy conduct and godliness. Father, we we thank you for your promises. We thank you that they are sure. We thank you, Lord, for being a just and merciful God. Father, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.